Unfucking the Republic is brought to you by Sam C. and Cringy, unfucking insane level members of the show. Anybody tells you money's the root of all evil doesn't fucking have any. They say money can't buy happiness. Look at the fucking smile on my face. Ear to ear, baby. You want details? Bye. Last week, AOC and Noam Chomsky appeared together on the Laura Flanders show. And now I'm dead. I hereby bequeath the show to Nettie McGee of Outagamie County. She'll know what to do with it. We'll miss you, but Nettie's great, so. Unfucking Outagamie, starring Nettie McGee in 99. And Wild Eyed Bob Knutson. It does have a ring to it. Unfuckers, subfuckers, down underfuckers, Eurofuckers, Unkinuckers, Pitch Bottle, and Turkfuckers. It's good to be back after our quickie last week with a full on unfucking. Unfucking the Republic is supported entirely by our listeners who either donate through one-time donations or memberships at buymeacoffee.com slash UNFTR or by purchasing our native roasted coffee in partnership with the Unkachog Nation Roasters at UNFTR.com. Thank you all for the ongoing love and support that allows us to keep churning out the love week after motherfucking week. And if you are a member of the show, your perks should be in the mail this week, so look out for that. You know, we've hit on some big themes so far on fuckers, some macro, some micro, learning how things happen and why. Who fucked things up and who's trying to make it better? We've unpacked capitalism, Marxism, socialism, modern monetary theory, privatization and deregulation, how budgets are built and how the money is deployed, how corporations leverage their influence to rig the system, then hide their ill-gotten gains from the public. We've shit on the living like Rupert Murdoch and Rebecca Mercer and pissed on the corpses of Ronald Reagan, Milton Friedman, and Ayn Rand. Mostly what we've done, though, is talk about results. The results of policy or the destructive side of ideologies that produce inequality, hardship, and subjugation. But these things and people operate within a larger structure of money and power. Massive non-governmental organizations that set down the rules of engagement and maintain the status quo. Yes, unfuckers. I'm talking about the Illuminati. No, we're not. All right, fine. But we are going to go big picture and look at how this all works. And please take that to heart. This is super big picture for a reason. We're going to draw big conclusions to match because this episode will be sweeping. We're keeping it top level to tell a story here. As individuals, as workers, as people with responsibilities, we have our own relationship with money, but a purely transactional one. You make it. You spend it. You buy shit. You sell shit. Maybe you've got some crypto in a virtual wallet that was mined on a server or some bills in your mattress, a 401k or pension plan. You've got a debit card, a credit card, or maybe five. Use Venmo to pay the babysitter or do wire transfers with account numbers and ABA routing numbers to offshore accounts through shell corporations you set up to hide money from the government. No matter the situation, the fact remains that at no point were you involved in the creation of this money or determining its value in the world. That's the job of the Illuminati. No, it's not. All right, fine. But I do think many of us have a sense that the game is rigged against the working class. We're talking about people on Earth having a net worth of a trillion dollars. Money keeps pumping through the global economy. The stock market seems to be in a never-ending bull cycle, just up and up and up. And yet down here on planet everyone else, it's the same old song. The explanations we've covered of monetary and fiscal policy, taxation, fraud, corporatism, or inverted totalitarianism, as we covered in our ISMS episode, go a long way to understanding how we here in America have deployed our capital and demonstrated our priorities. But it's a big world, and we're not the only ones in the game. 
I wanted to cover this now to help set the stage for the coming months by going big. This is actually the first of a two-parter, with next week being the global order of power. Hopefully, after these two episodes, we'll share a broader understanding of the global levers of capital, how money is made, how it moves, and who is actually in control. The beginning of our tale today is 1944, the birth of the New World Economic Order in New Hampshire, right here in the good old U.S. of A. Then we'll address the global institutions that followed, some from that year and others since. Talk about who actually controls the flow of funds within nations and among them. And we'll finish talking about the confluence of current events that should make us all really, really nervous. You see, right now we've got some really big stuff happening on the world stage. COP26, China trying to enter the CPTPP. Economic alliances shifting in the wake of the U.S. power vacuum created by Trump's destructive behavior to the WTO, the Iran nuclear agreement, the WHO, and NATO. And we have a very weak Democratic president trying to glue these relations back together with bubblegum and tape while not being able to get consensus among his own fucking party members at home. Another mess is brewing, and there are extremely complicated factors at play that require our understanding and attention, because if we blink, you know what that means. The Illuminati will kill us all. No, they won't. This is the story of a political pundit Who looked at the world around him and just said fuck it Gives the middle finger to authority and says kiss my ass But instead of a revolution he started a podcast Just what the world needs Another basic white guy who started a podcast But it's fun because he curses Chapter 1. In the beginning, there was Bretton Woods. At Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, delegates from 44 allied and associate countries arrived for the opening of the United Nations Monetary and Financial Conference. Invited by President Roosevelt to the first major world financial meeting since the London Conference of 1933, they will work in the seclusion of this White Mountains resort. The war wasn't over yet, but the Allied powers were confident enough in the outcome that they began turning their attention to the New World Order, a post-war economic order that would lay the groundwork for recovery, growth, and as all of the attendees hoped, world peace. Stop doing that. Okay. World peace might have seemed a rather lofty, if not ironic, goal, considering we were still in the throes of the Second World War, but for those gathered in New Hampshire in 1944, it was the main imperative. Many of the assembled economic diplomats had experienced both great wars, in particular the chief architect of the Bretton Woods plan, John Maynard Keynes. In the first half of our FMF episode, we covered Keynes at length and spoke of his desire to create a more stable and equitable world based on strict economic principles and personal observations of the worst instincts of humankind. Most of what was ultimately adopted at Bretton Woods had Keynes's fingerprints all over it, though he didn't get everything that he wanted. His plan would have put more power into the hands of a central monetary authority to prevent countries from falling too far into recessions or depressions. 
In fact, one of his broad assumptions was that the new alpha economy of the United States would itself experience another Great Depression at some point in its existence. And if it was in too much control of the financial levers of the world, its indebtedness would pressure the reserves of other countries and drag them down as well. But Keynes was in failing health. He was no longer the robust and towering figure that had aggravated monarchs, presidents, and prime ministers in his youth. He was still a revered economist and thinker, so his basic framework was adopted. To address the global order of money prior to Bretton Woods is almost like delving into ancient history. It's almost impossible today to describe how profound this conference was and how much foresight the participants had. In terms of money supply, the Breton attendees were dealing with one particular circumstance that would evolve in relatively short order, the gold standard. At the time, the world was still operating under the gold standard whereby every nation had to maintain a strategic reserve in actual gold. It was a rigid structure that relied on coordination, but could easily be blown apart when one country or another ran into trouble and ran huge deficits much like most of the European countries had in the first part of the century and then the United States during the Great Depression. Keynes's idea was to maintain stability by having one central clearinghouse for international funds. Everyone would pay into it, deficit nations would have the ability to borrow and surplus nations would have to remit the surplus in order to maintain balance through the issuance of a new global currency designed to settle imbalances. This wasn't about trade. It was about currency and making sure no one ran too low, ran too hot, or just ran out. Ultimately, this measure wasn't adopted and a compromise was achieved to create a reserve fund that could be used as a lifeline for struggling economies in the form of a credit line. The key here is that a central authority was indeed established for the purpose of managing a global currency exchange and mechanisms were put in place to assist struggling countries, especially in the aftermath of the war. What did come to pass out of Breton was the formation of two organizations that endure to this day. We'll talk about them more in the upcoming section, but they were the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. The former was established to monitor currency exchange and lend money to deficit nations. Each participating country essentially forks over a share of funds every year to maintain this reserve based on their relative economic size. The latter was established to help countries recover from the war and to see developing nations with desperately needed capital so they could enter the world economy. Many dispute the effectiveness of these bodies and in fact some argue that they're responsible for keeping poorer countries in poverty. And we'll discuss this, but there are three key takeaways from chapter one. The first is to simply acknowledge how big this conference was and how much was accomplished. I love this shit so much, think about it. The conference lasted only 22 days in July of 1944, brilliant minds from around the world descending on a little town in New Hampshire to create a blueprint for how the world would operate for the next several decades. And it stuck. For better or for worse, we can debate the outcome or how it was manipulated. It's important to still appreciate the sheer magnitude of this accomplishment. The second is to appreciate just how much of a divergence this framework was from the order of things before. Before Bretton Woods, it was every nation for itself. In World War I, remember that it wasn't the United States that bailed out Britain at the 11th hour to fund their ongoing war efforts. It was J.P. Morgan and Henry Davidson. Prior to Bretton Woods, a country could literally run out of currency. Just go broke. What Keynes and others envisaged at Bretton Woods was a system of interchange and balance that would prevent such collapses of nation states and the inevitable spread of defaults like dominoes among creditor nations. These are factual takeaways. 
The third observation is a little more personal. When you spend time in history and soak up the atmosphere and dissect what was on the minds of these figures as they were living in the moment, it's really striking and powerful. Here was a group of intellectuals straining and stretching their imaginations at the peak of catastrophe with literally the fate of the world in their hands, each bringing personal and national bias to the table, but checking their egos in service of a higher purpose. And in doing so, they were able to architect a new global order of money in just three weeks, a system that endures to this day. My observation now is less about today and more about the intransigence of the global bureaucracy. Big thinkers such as Thomas Piketty aren't being called upon to adopt new thinking and create new bodies to foster equity, financial stability, and battle climate change. It's all done within this now legacy framework that has been awfully good for a handful of nations and pretty terrible for others. Thirteen years after the Bretton Woods Agreement was adopted, the gold standard was eased and currencies were then convertible into U.S. dollars at a fixed exchange rate to gold. But then, 13 years after the convertibility to dollars, Nixon formally exited from the agreement by ending the peg to gold and allowing currency to float. With no restrictions on money flow, the global economy was unshackled and imbalances would become a way of life. But for an ever so brief moment in time, Keynes and company showed the world how a properly functioning and regulated system of currency and trade could help the entire world grow together instead of the asymmetrical development we have today. Uh, the Bretton Woods system with financial regulation persisted through roughly 1970. Uh, that's a period that's commonly called the golden age of post-war capitalism, a period of high growth, uh, high growth of productivity, uh, expansion of the social contract and you know, the so-called welfare state, uh, which turned the Universal Declaration into something a little more than a letter to Santa Claus. Hey, why is everyone so glum? The election, Joe. Oh, but I thought you won, Kamala. Not that one, Joe. This past election. We lost Virginia. Well, she couldn't have gone far. Have you checked under the desk in your office? That's where I left my jitterbug phone the other day. Virginia the state, sir. Holy smokes, Pisaki. You sure do get around. <laughs> Didn't even see you there. The worst part about it is they're blaming the progressives. I get it. I hate those damn progressives. Glasses should either help you read or see in the distance, not both. Biden, honey. The grown-ups are going to talk for a little bit, KK. Come on, man. Pisaki, you get me Nancy, Chuck, Cinema, and Mansion right now. Bernie, you stay put. Here they are, ma'am. Holy shit. Seriously, how does she do that? Listen up, you turds. Mamala isn't going to stand for another bloodbath like Virginia. I think my popularity in the great state of New Jersey and affiliation with my partner, Rosario Dawson, salvaged that election. No one asked you, Senator Booker. And why are you even here? Look, we blew Bhutan off the map and no one cared. I let Joe use Air Force One to travel around the world, and he just fell asleep everywhere he went. All anyone cares about is the fact that you motherfuckers can't pass a single bill. Cinema, what the fuck is your problem already? I've been clear from the start. Left-handed windshifters make provisions for NORAD and Dumbledore to erase systemic gangrene from the lubricant hole of Narnia. Also, big farmer bros love that I'm bisexual. What the actual fuck, Kirsten? Well, it's simple, really. 
I built an empire supplying coal mines and manufacturers, and I'm in the pocket of big money funders who like that I can literally hold the status quo in Congress. Yeah, same-sies, except for the coal part. Well, that was at least pretty honest. I'll give you that. Nancy and I want what's best for the American people. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, seriously. Nancy and I are committed to embarrassing the progressives in our caucus, so it's imperative that we make them look petulant and greedy while pretending to be angry with Kirsten and Joe, who are actually doing exactly what we need them to do in order to maintain power and diminish the role of progressives. I won't be happy until that little bitch AOC comes to me groveling and sniveling for the scraps when we're in the minority. Did uh, everyone just swallow some fucking truth serum or something? Listen up, everyone. Do we have our differences? Heck yeah. But that's what makes us great as a nation. We're not perfect. Even the founding fathers understood that we were a flawed nation. But they gave us a gift for all eternity. A mechanism to work out our differences and strive to be a better nation. The same gift that President Lincoln used to pull this nation together in its darkest time. The same gift that we hold in our hands and in our hearts at this very moment. The Constitution of the United States of America. We the people, in order to form a more perfect union. That's what it says. Didn't say it was perfect from the start. We've always been a work in progress. A work toward progress. It's time to put our differences aside, man, and unite as one party to do the work of the people. We cannot, we will not let them down. Not under my watch. So help me God. Holy fuck. There's the Joe that I know. That's very moving, sir. Joe Biden, I didn't know you had it in you, Mr. President. So get old Khrushchev on the blower and let's turn those ships away from Cuba. Chapter 2. A Brief History of Money Money is a big, broad term. Net worth, cash in hand, fungible commodities, leverage, debt, and credit. Clam, scratch, scottle, bank, moolah, ducats. If there's too much of it in a given sector, it's worth less. If it's not backed by something tangible, it could even be worthless. The phrase, money goes to money, is more than just the law of attraction. It's how the world truly revolves. Those with capital are able to accumulate more of it because they have the capital to pledge. It's pretty simple. But where does it come from? Who decides how much to make of it? And how much is it worth? And for much of human history, money was a fairly simple concept. The market, or the market forces like supply and demand, determine how much a thing is worth and the form of money you have access to allows you to acquire it. Again, that could be a paper dollar for a good or service, or an equal trade of a commodity for a good, good for a service, and so on. That's a true free market definition in the strictest sense. Beneath it all, however, there has to be an intrinsic value of money. Now, prior to the Enlightenment era, when the major powers of the world began trading in a more sophisticated and consistent manner, the value of money was largely an internal matter. When it came to trading between nations, it was an arduous task to determine the value of a good or a service. Rough sets of ledgers on ships and ports and held in kingdoms across the globe held approximations of trade and values, but it was rough and outdated, always old information. 
1821, the Brits, cheeky buggers that they are, decided to adopt a stricter standard based on physical stores of gold and silver. Uh, nope, we talked about this last week. Sorry, love. So for the next 50 years or so, stores of gold and silver were the baseline value of currency and trade. These were tangible and, so they thought, finite sources that could carry a fixed value. In the 1870s, the UK moved to a strict gold standard, which is where this concept comes from. Discoveries of gold in the New World helped expand the quantity of gold reserves, essentially giving those governments more purchasing power. But it was still an imperfect system because of the finite nature. Currency would boom and bust all the way through to the First World War, with nations responding by allowing paper convertible notes to stand in for actual gold transfers. It crashed again and again, leading into the Great Depression, at which point the United States created a currency innovation called pegging, which established a minimum dollar value of gold that opened the minds of economists around the world to the possibility of a more expansive currency. So these were the circumstances the Bretton Woods crew were dealing with. The world was getting bigger in terms of trade and opportunity, but nations were getting ever more insular and protectionist. China wasn't yet an economic factor. The tepid alliance between Western powers and Russia was most certainly going to break after the Second World War, and the United States was ascendant on the world stage. But with the depression so fresh in their minds and the brutal human toll of the war still very much present, the Bretton Woods negotiators fought to establish order under a theory that we'll return to in our conclusion. The idea was that global interdependence in terms of trade would dictate the terms of peace in the future. Essentially, if our economies were so intertwined, it would be economic suicide to war with one another. Again, remember that for later. A few years after Bretton Woods, economists from the developed world gathered once again to form the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade in 1947. The GATT, as it was known, was the precursor to today's World Trade Organization, which we'll also discuss below. It was one thing to determine the rules of engagement where currency was concerned, and wholly another to facilitate trade among nations who had literally just shed one another's blood for the second time in the past three decades. The GATT negotiators were tasked with determining a framework for trade that would reduce barriers between nations, i.e. eliminate tariffs, to the greatest extent possible. The United States, with the obvious hot hand and the economy coming out of the war, insisted on something called most favored nation status, which essentially meant that the best prevailing deal between two nations must extend to all participating nations. Ironically, the biggest obstacle to achieving this was our staunchest ally, the United Kingdom. As one delegate named Winthrop Brown wrote of the negotiations, quote, It is an absolutely beautiful day. The lake is very blue. The hills look like a picture postcard. And the only blots on the landscape are British preferences about which I spend most of the night dreaming, end quote. So ultimately, a rough set of rules that would become GATT were adopted, mainly because of a diplomatic back-channel effort known as the Marshall Plan. Basically, a carrot instead of a stick that offered direct post-war recovery assistance from the United States to any nation that adopted GATT. This measure, along with the increasing fear surrounding the intentions of Stalin, who had already lowered the Iron Curtain by this time and was consolidating power in Eastern Europe, was enough to draw the U.S. and mostly European nations to the table. This set of guidelines, well, just that, guidelines, was largely unenforceable. But it was enough to set the course of global trade, even if it was mostly on the honor system. Years later, the GATT would be formalized and streamlined into the World Trade Organization. 
For the next couple of decades, Europe, the United States, and to some extent Japan, and parts of South America developed asymmetrically compared to most other nations. Though we couldn't see it clearly at the time, the Soviet Union was building an economy that gave a lot of false signals. It was like a Mercedes body with a Yugo engine and a howitzer gun attached to the hood. It looked sharp, scared the shit out of everyone, but there was little under the hood. The Soviets were stuck with a series of bilateral agreements, one-to-one -one relationships between nations like Cuba. Sugar for oil was the whole basis of their arrangement as an example. This was only efficient when there was total parity between nations, meaning an equal understanding of the value of what each had to offer. Any variation, like a drought, supply chain disruption, or some other external event, created imbalance in bilateral agreements that felt far worse than imbalances in multilateral agreements that had size and diversity on their side. So this period was pretty incredible for the United States in particular. We were having our way with the world, and the economy here was pumping on all eight cylinders. The period between Bretton Woods and Nixon was extraordinary on two levels. One, our economy was like a rocket. In just a couple of decades, we found ourselves alone at the top of the mountain. And two, because most workers in America came along for the ride. But nothing lasts forever. Chapter 3. Who Runs the World? Psych. Listen, I wish, but it's actually mostly dudes. Dudes who run organizations and countries that have control of the levers of currency and power. So we spent all that time at war battling recessions and depressions in the first half of the 20th century to finally arrive at our moment. I'm speaking to the core of American unfuckers here. We were running a Burger King economy for 25 years. But of course, we weren't the only- Hold up, hold up. What the fuck is a Burger King economy? Your way right away, baby. Okay, no. If you're thinking of trying to make that happen, I'm just going to edit it out, so don't even start. Gretchen, stop trying to make fetch happen. It's not going to happen. All right. Well, like I was saying, we weren't the only ones paying attention, and we wouldn't have it our way exclusively for long. So let's bring in some of the other players on the world stage and some key dates. As we mentioned briefly in the beginning, money is more than bills or precious metals. It also comes in the form of commodities, and the biggest one of the bunch is oil. I'm actually super excited to finally introduce the subject of oil because it's literally one of my favorite topics. Coming out of the first great war, the British, French, and United States understood what was under the desert in the Middle East and how important it would be. As European powers blithely carved out artificial boundaries, eventually these nation states began to take on nationalistic identities and government structures that leveraged their newfound wealth. So one of the first important developments after World War II was the formation of OPEC the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries. In their book, The World for Sale by Javier Blas and Jack Farkey, the authors describe the post-war economic growth saying, quote, in dollar terms, the world's trade in manufactured goods and natural resources rose from less than 60 billion just after the Second World War to more than 17 trillion in 2017, a quarter of which was made up by commodities. This is another great read that we'll put in our bookstore, by the way. The authors describe OPEC's formation in the momentous terms it deserves. Quote, The change marked the beginning of an era in which OPEC would turn the oil markets and the world economy on its head. 
ending the dominance of the Seven Sisters for good and handing huge power to the commodity traders, end quote. When we get to our oil episode, we'll talk a lot about these fucking cowboys. Well, it sounds to me like you guys are a couple of bookies. <laughs> I told you he'd understand. The Seven Sisters, by the way, were the private oil companies before OPEC changed the game and nationalized fossil fuel corporations. OPEC was important because it added another layer to the money onion. Hypergrowth and expansion of the U.S. economy was spreading around the world, and it required a shit ton of oil from input to finished product. There was a real fear that we were going to reach what economists termed peak oil sometime in the late 70s. So there was serious pressure on pricing because of the high demand and concern that supply would eventually dissipate. With OPEC exercising price controls and playing funny business with supply and demand continuing to increase from the United States consumer, things were heating up and inflation became a growing concern. Then in 1971, as we've covered before, Nixon took us off the gold standard and allowed currency to float, which let loose monetary policy first in the United States and then around the world as other nations struggled to keep pace. Nixon also thumbed his nose at the GATT and started applying tariffs to several imports, which created even more chaos in the global exchanges. In 1978, someone else decided it was time to grab a mitt and get into the game. Deng Xiaoping, the successor to Chairman Mao, decided it was time to transform the Chinese economy. From that period until China's acceptance into the World Trade Organization, China's growth was very steady and deliberate, but it was its entry into the WTO that supercharged their economy. Again, from the world for sale. The Chinese economy, which had grown 50% between 1980 and 1989, and 175% the following decade, now expanded by more than 400% in the decade after its ascension to the WTO. A couple more huge events to set the stage for current times are worth mentioning here. If you're of a certain age, you'll remember the hysteria in the 1980s that the United States was going to be taken over by Japan. <laughs> I've heard a lot of talk about uh, how good the Japanese businessmen are. Quite frankly, I'm sorry. I don't get it. I don't see it. I'm not impressed. They were actually buying everything. It seemed like they owned Manhattan. Their auto plants were crushing us. They were the model of efficiency. But I took care of that by crushing their souls. Yes, you did, Ronnie. In 1985, the U.S. forced the Japanese to the table, along with several of our allies, to deflate the Japanese currency, which effectively consigned them to decades of low growth and near-zero interest rates to stave off inflation. Just one of the ways I made America great again. Shut up, Ronnie. Point being, whenever competition flared up around the world, the United States would use economic policy mechanisms to beat them back. And when that didn't work, we used the measures we'll cover in next week's episode, The Global Order of Power. Now, quickly, before we move into discussing what happens next and talking about what's at stake in the Biden years and beyond, let's do a quick rundown of the global organizations that still exist and participate in the intricate dance of global trade and finance. The International Monetary Fund. To keep the global economy running smoothly, 189 member countries work together to promote financial stability, prevent crises, and facilitate trade through the International Monetary Fund. Thank you, corporate voiceover lady. Well, as she said, there are 189 member countries of the IMF, one of the functioning remnants of the Bretton Woods Agreement, designed to foster economic growth of member nations on the one hand and prevent catastrophe in times of crisis on the other. Notable attempts of the latter include recent history crises in places like Cyprus, Greece, Ireland, Portugal, and Venezuela, among others. 
In these circumstances, the IMF is called upon to resolve a financial crisis of sorts by offering financing from its coffers filled by member nations in accordance with their respective economic size. It can also be an intermediary by arranging financing between member nations as well. Now, critics of the IMF have blasted it for the strings that attaches to these funds, however. Often, the IMF will impose either strict usage of the funds or worse, require internal economic austerity provisions in order to qualify for the funds. We saw this repeatedly in its attempts to help struggling Latin American economies through the 80s and 90s, for example. The IMF went so far as to mandate the closure of certain social welfare programs and infrastructure and to open their borders to allow foreign investors to come in. And you can only imagine who was dictating these type of policies. The World Bank. The World Bank is aptly named in that it's a globally chartered institution that exists to lend money to less wealthy and developing nations. It's another legacy institution from the Bretton Woods Agreement that was established to help bring poor countries out of poverty, as opposed to the IMS role of financing nations in crisis. It runs a few different ways. The first is by offering low-interest loans to smaller governments it considers creditworthy. For the poorest nations, it has a program to extend interest-free loans, but they're still loans. Then it has coordinating bodies that advise and coordinate external financing sources for projects and plans, or helps promote significant projects by encouraging foreign direct investment. It also performs an arbitration function whenever there are disputes over debt and investments. The World Bank president is always appointed by the United States because the U.S. is the largest shareholder in the institution. The U.S. gets to appoint the head of the World Bank, and Europe gets to appoint the IMF head. It's unclear whether this is a formal written agreement or the longest standing handshake arrangement in the world. I actually couldn't find out which. Any unfuckers know, because I've seen it written both ways. Anywho, as The Intercept recently reported, before Donald Trump appointed current president David Malpass to head the World Bank, it was almost his daughter Ivanka. But apparently, Steve Mnuchin stepped in to make sure that this didn't happen. This would have been hilariously Trump-like to give the poor countries of the world a gigantic fuck you by appointing his wealthy daughter, who somehow purportedly earned hundreds of millions of dollars while serving in the White House. Today, the World Bank has a bit of a mess on its hands. It too suffers from an integrity issue, with many claiming that their funds too often come with unreasonable strings attached or unsavory investment characters behind the curtain. But it also has a problem as COVID-19 has disproportionately punished underdeveloped economies, with the World Bank itself projecting that it will take years for most of them to recover. And it has a climate change problem on its hands, as recently reported by The Guardian in advance of COP26. The World Bank has come under scrutiny for talking out of both sides of its mouth. It professes a desire to fund carbon-neutral projects and help guide developing nations on a sustainable path, while also funding direct or indirect fossil fuel investments in some of the worst polluting countries in the world. The World Trade Organization. Ah, the WTO. So we talked before about how admission to the WTO was like a rocket fuel to the Chinese economy. That's what happens when you move from bilateral to multilateral trade agreements and open up the world to investment opportunities from capital inflow to import-export. Similar to the IMF and the World Bank, the WTO is funded by member countries, but it doesn't provide financing or support. It's designed to provide the legal and structural framework for international trade and to settle any disputes that might arise from said trade. That said, China had to eliminate literally thousands of regulations in order to qualify for admission to the WTO as it built its economy on internal subsidies and centrally planned growth for decades leading up to it. 
Their reliance on subsidies remains a sticking point with the U.S., who consistently take Chinese leaders to task for manipulating markets, and they're not necessarily wrong. Of course, the United States is certainly guilty of many of the same issues, especially in the agricultural sector. And the fact that we maintain our own forms of bilateral or quasi-multilateral agreements like NAFTA. But as the number one economy and the largest voice in all of the organizations we've covered, we typically operate under the do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do mantra. Now, you might recall how dismal our relationship with the WTO was during the Trump years and how we threatened to pull out of it. Wait, I think you mean the WHO. Uh, That's different, but yes, them too. No, he's talking about NATO. No, I'm talking about... I mean, yes, he he tried to do that too. But no, what I'm talking about here is... No, 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 99, I got it. It's the Paris Climate Agreement. You mean the Iran nuclear deal? Actually, it might have been Christmas. Um, If you two are quite finished, I would like to continue. The WTO... As an organization, was formally established in 1995 from the guidelines that were GATT from Bretton Woods. To the extent the organization has any teeth, it's on the front end of admitting participating nations and on the back end when settling disputes. In the middle, they have little in the way of power, but as evidenced by the surge in growth China experienced, its power comes in its ability to compel countries to eliminate barriers to trade and level the playing field. Maintaining a level playing field implies a robust regulatory and settlement body, though, which is where the Trump administration focused its attack. Disputes among nations arise all the time. We have a big one, actually, right now between the U.S. and Mexico over tuna fishing. And the WTO will try to settle the disputes with a ruling at the administrative level, but every nation has the right to appeal a decision. The appellate body is nominated and filled by, ta-da, the United States. And Trump got rid of them all. And Biden, for some reason, hasn't replaced them because he's fucking asleep. Once again, he's not the only one. Central banks. So this brings us to the central banks. Let's ask resident badass and former Greek finance minister Yanis Varoufakis about the importance of central banks. Since 2008, the great financial crash, capitalism is on a drip feed. It's being kept alive through constant injections of money from the central banks. That has never happened before. It started in 2008. In 1929, it didn't happen. That's why all the banks closed down. So the banking system and the stock exchange had 12 years of getting used to, becoming addicted to central bank money being pumped their way during difficult moments. The object of so much hate from leftists opposed to corporate welfare and libertarians on the right who oppose interventionism of any kind. In fact, do you know the formal Libertarian Party was established in response to Nixon taking us off the gold standard? Anywho, the big international organizations we just covered manage the flow of currency and trade across borders, settle disputes, provide financing for member nations, etc. But that still doesn't explain where money comes from. Enter the central banking system. Every so-called developed nation has a central bank. In the U.S., it's the Federal Reserve. There are other big ones like the Bank of Canada, Central Bank of Brazil, Bank of England, Central Bank of Russia, People's Bank of China, Bank of Japan, Reserve Bank of Australia, and more. But these are the big ones. Then there's a super central bank in Europe called the European Central Bank, or the ECB, and we'll get there in a second. So these banks are broadly responsible for generating a nation's currency, the authority that prints, circulates, and keeps track of the funds. But they also have management authority over economic matters, such as setting interest rates, ooh, libertarians hate this, and controlling market interest rates and inflation by alternately buying government notes or selling them, depending on the objective. 
So let's go back for a second to tie in Bretton Woods. Prior to Bretton Woods, a central bank could print currency, but only insofar as it represented the amount of gold reserves a nation held. That's how a country could literally run out of money. What Keynes and others designed was a system where nations could print currency with a baseline value of gold, but it could multiply in excess of the gold value in form of debt. But the policymakers wanted to ensure that this excess supply still maintained a relative value. So when Nixon ripped off the Band-Aid to let currency float, he was basically removing the underlying value of the currency and letting the market forces drive it instead. So if you're a wealthy nation with extraordinary creditworthiness, you can afford to do this more easily than other nations and still have to settle international transactions in dollars. So if we print a shit ton of money, we suddenly impact the value of all other currencies, which is why the Breton standards fell apart within just a couple of years from this move. Central banks like the Federal Reserve also have policy mechanisms that influence money supply. For example, they mandate the amount of reserve capital commercial banks are required to hold to either free up money to lend it or constrict it. It can also act as the banker to the banks, or as they like to frame it, be the lender of last resort when an institution is in trouble. This was the part of the economic recovery in 2009 and again during COVID that drove leftists mad. Always money to save the banks, rarely for the people. This is what Varoufakis was referring to as the steady drip that undergirds the so-called free markets. All of these central banks feed up to the Bank of Central Banks, which is called the Bank for International Settlements, or BIS. The BIS facilitates international exchange, helps create policy, and can even issue credit in the form of funds or gold. It's far less important to the likes of the Federal Reserve or Bank of England, but it is a touchstone for the smaller central bank operations. So I mentioned ECB as the outlier before, because it is. Europe is an interesting scenario and an experiment that might be the last innovative act of international finance. What makes it special is that it has the same powers as the other central banks, but among member nations in the EU and not just a single nation. And it's a currency issuer as well. Not all EU member countries use the euro as currency, however. Countries like Sweden, Denmark, Croatia, and Poland maintain sovereign currency, but are also part of the eurozone. It's kind of complicated and dicey as not all member nations are similarly disposed to function within the system. So going back to badass Giannis for a moment. Giannis, what was your role with the EU during the Greek debt crisis? Uh, my policy, for instance, when I was in the ministry was uh, a campaign of disobedience. I love that guy. Anyway, so go back to our MMT episode and things really begin to fall into place, right? Recall the argument that sovereign currency nations like the United States, UK, and Canada have the ability to print money when necessary, as opposed to the EU, for example, because our currencies are sovereign and our balance sheets and therefore creditworthiness are enormous. Our governments have the ability to print money to fund things like a banking crisis or, let's say, a war. Things that don't impact our daily lives as consumers, thereby eliminating the risk of inflation relative to the excess capital in the system. The point that Varoufakis and others have made is that developed nations in this position have been artificially juicing our own systems with this monetary design, but only as it relates to the investor class. Now go back to John Stewart's discussion with Jamie Dimon about how our economic policies have only been for the benefit of the investor class, and this is the central reason why. The MMT policymakers have argued that if you can pump money into the banks through bond purchases, direct cash infusions, and low to no interest rate loans, then you could just as easily drive revenue through non-consumer inflationary channels in the economy to assist the poorest among us. But when confronted with this option, the political class, 
backed by the investor class, balks at this, saying it will drive inflation and give money away to people that don't deserve it. And on the international end, when we flood the system with money, prop up our banks and allow them to pour money back into the equity markets to increase the value of our companies, whether they deserve it or not, we're effectively creating a value bubble. But when developing nations look to borrow money to expand their capital base and invest in themselves, we use our leverage through these giant organizations and force them to implement social austerity measures and open their markets to foreign investors. I drink your milkshake. I drink it up. Chapter 4. The Gathering Storm So what are we really doing here? Personally, I find it cathartic to learn how the world works. I think that's a characteristic that unfuckers share because we always get a ton of great feedback on our explanatory episodes like these. And I think it's good to zoom out every once in a while to look at these puzzle pieces from above to see if we can make out any patterns. So I wanted to go through this exercise together to, again, create a shared language and set of established concepts, but to also look for looming issues that might be in our collective blind spots. It's one thing to take a shit on capitalism and the way the world works because we don't like the outcomes they produce, but it's always better to understand what exactly isn't working and why. The totality and complexity of the structure can be daunting. And there's an obvious sense of inequity, if not downright foul play. But within these organizations, from the Fed and the ECB to the WTO, World Bank, and IMF, there are real human beings operating under the belief that they're kind of holding all of this together and that a better world is possible by way of their work. But it's also possible to be so deep into a flawed system that you can no longer see it for the rigged system it's become. When you think about what Uncle Gnome was saying when talking about this golden age, it really resonates when you consider that real wages in the United States haven't grown since this period, the gap between the ultra-wealthy and the extremely poor has widened, and we're pillaging the resources of the planet in pursuit of this imbalanced equation. So let's look at the warning signs that are all around. Here at home, we can't get a 10-year, $3 trillion infrastructure and build back better bill, which was $6 trillion but actually started as 10 passed by a government controlled by one fucking party. And yet, our military budget over the same period of time is about $9 trillion, Almost $1 trillion a year on a military with no one to murder is a really bad sign. There's a growing sense that China will soon overtake the United States on the world stage as the dominant economic power. And some think this is hyperbole, and others look at the data and conclude that, yeah, it's just a matter of time. I'm removing the severe economic impact of climate change in this assertion as we covered in our climate industrial complex episode, just to illustrate a pure economic point, by the way. If we look at this through the current lens of the authorities that we covered so far in this episode, it's almost as if we're resigned to this fact and handing it over to China. To wit, remember the Trans-Pacific Partnership that Obama was negotiating in secret? The one that Trump used against Hillary Clinton, who said she was for it before she was against it, to quote John Kerry's budget support for the Iraq war? To be clear, it was disastrous for workers in developing nations. It took away all their protections, which hopefully makes more sense having gone through the downside of these bilateral and multilateral agreements. The biggest upside, in my opinion, was some clarity around intellectual property. Of course, this would also be used to protect big drug companies mostly, which is not a great thing, but it did protect American interests from Chinese appropriation of our technology. At any rate, just because we pulled out doesn't mean it died. 
That's right, the dreaded TPP, initially designed to back China into a corner by co-opting their biggest partnerships, is alive and well, with China posed to become the anchor player in something now called the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, or the CPTPP. Although it's unclear whether China and its partner Taiwan will be able to clear the bar set by other nations, which include Canada, Australia, and Japan, and possibly the UK, it would be a massive win for the Chinese government. And they would effectively replace the United States as the dominant trading partner with the ability to direct rules around IP, tariffs, and more. Again, I'm not signaling support, nor am I decrying this development. I'm merely pointing out something that should be of grave concern to the establishment players in Washington who are hell-bent on maintaining a global order that we're losing a grip on because we're asleep at the switch. Trump pulled out of it because he pulled out of everything, and no one around him understood the consequences from global trade to climate. And now, as our commander in sleep makes his way around the world asking to be included, he's not getting the greatest reception, partly because no one here or anywhere else in the world thinks he's going to be there in three years. An asymmetrical recovery that has punished the working poor in every nation on earth and a fractured supply chain that is wreaking havoc on trade isn't helping the situation either. And we can't muster the domestic support for a no-brainer initiative to fix our infrastructure, provide a living wage, make prescription drugs affordable, and offer childcare to every citizen? It's fucking bonkers. But maybe, maybe it would be understandable if we were paying more attention to the big picture. But here again, we won't replace the appellate board at the WTO. We've allowed Iran to enrich uranium to the furthest it ever has, which is creating panic in the Middle East. We're letting China get the better of us at our own trade game and responding the only way we know how, by playing war games in the fucking ocean. I sincerely applaud the worker bees at the organizations we covered today because they've succeeded thus far in ventilating a corpse of a flawed system that was designed to create billionaires and soon, apparently, trillionaires. They're using the policy mechanisms and frameworks that have benefited the corporate investor class of the world to the best of their ability. And when all hell breaks loose, they have the wealth of the sovereign currency nations to mask the cracks in the system, even if millions of people are falling through them at the very same time. But it can't go on like this forever. Everything breaks at some point, and given the current vacuum of real leadership in Washington and in Europe, I'm afraid we're in for a pretty wild ride and a painful wake-up call. New, big thinking is required, but as we've seen, we only summon the thinkers when the moneyed class is set flat on its ass. At some point, we'll be out of aces. Our greatest policies came in our greatest time of need. So it seems ever so clear that we'll have to once again wait for catastrophe before we turn to those that have the answers, to the next John Maynard Keynes, wherever she may be. Next week, we're going to pull on some more threads and examine the global order of power and the intersectionality between power and economic might. The overarching point should become abundantly clear at that time. The world is a tinderbox. The current superpower is playing its last hand and knows only how to destroy to survive. And with no clear fight on the horizon but a shitload of cash and munitions, destruction will be our modus operandi when our hegemony is challenged. Across the world, the emerging power is forming its own alliances with our longtime allies to overtake our economic position. Is there anyone anywhere that thinks that we'll go quietly into second place? 
Finally, to those who might think this is excessive or alarmist, it was thought at the turn of the 20th century that the world was poised to enter a century of peace, at least as the Western powers perceived it. They believed this because the Industrial Revolution had forged global markets with interdependent economies. War was bad for business. Forget the fact that the leaders of almost every country in World War I were literally related to one another. Prevailing wisdom was that money was thicker than blood and everyone was about to get paid. And then, in an instant, the world descended into the bloodiest conflict ever recorded. And on this, I'll leave the final word to the author of The War That Ended Peace, Margaret Macmillan, probably one of my favorite books of all time. Here she is. Financial experts, whether bankers or finance ministers, took it for granted that the war would have to be short. The disruption of trade and the inability of governments to borrow money as the international capital markets dried up would mean that impending bankruptcy would make it impossible for the belligerents to carry on fighting. As Norman Engel in his Great Illusion warned, even if Europe was so foolish as to go to war, the resulting economic chaos and domestic misery would rapidly force the warring nations to negotiate a peace. What few realized was that Europe's governments had an untested but great capacity to squeeze resources out of their societies, whether through taxation, managing their economies, or freeing up men for the front by using the labor of women and that Europeans themselves had a stoicism and doggedness which could keep them fighting through the long years to come, even as the terrible losses mounted. Before 1914, Europe, for all its problems, had hoped that the world was becoming a better place and that human civilization was advancing. After 1918, that faith was no longer possible." End quote. Money is power. Power corrupts. Therefore, money is corrupting. Here endeth the lesson. It's so much fun. Hey, 99. Hi, Max. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. So we got a review mm-hmm. that said, stop selling coffee. Just get to the point. Did you see that? I did see that. So I do want to address it because uh, the dude keeps listening. You know, he's a, he's a pretty faithful listener, but he's like annoyed at show notes. So show notes... This is where we chat. This is where we chit-chat with one another. A lot of the ideas that we get are hidden in the comments of people that are supporters of the show. They will say, here's some money. Thank you for being you and doing what you do. And by the way, can you cover X, Y, Z? So show notes for us has been pretty great in terms of teasing out what's on our listeners' minds. And I don't ever want it to seem like we're over-shilling. Yes, funding you know the show through our partnership with native coffee traders or uh, just taking out straight memberships from people that's how we get to do what we're doing 
we don't run commercials. We don't like take a break in the middle to be like, hey, remember to support the show. It's like, this is our thing. And this is kind of the way that people communicate with us. But even the people that don't send us money will communicate with us. And we try to, we really try to get to everybody on the show. So if show notes are annoying to people, I, I get it. You don't have to listen to it. It's totally fine. But one of the great things about it is that we do get to hear from you and read your comments. So just wanted to address that because, you know, every person matters here. Anyway, so let's start with book love really quickly. The War That Ended the Peace by Margaret Macmillan truly is one of the most inspiring books that I've ever read. She breaks it down by nation involved in the war and talks about the buildup and sort of gets rid of the myth that the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand was like the entire reason that the world descended into complete madness and chaos. But the real takeaway there was that like the world at that time, the Western world at least, had really no reason, incentive, motivation no undercurrent of like disputes. I mean, literally these people were fucking related. They were all family members. And then just boom, it happened. And you never see it coming. Nobody saw that coming. Margaret McMillan does, I think the best job covering that period. Fascinating, fascinating read. It's a few years old now, but it doesn't matter because it was written about something in 1914. So what the fucking, what, what difference does it make, right? You need updated information, just, just get the goddamn book. Okay, anyway, a new book, the World for Sale, Money, Power, and the Traders Who Barter the Earth's Resources. Also available in our bookstore at uh, bookshop.org slash shop slash UNFTRpod. That's a fun read, actually. It's pretty cool. They talk a lot about Mark Rich, which is pretty fascinating because it's something I kind of loosely understood. And the last one is Zombie Capitalism, Global Crisis, and the Relevance of Marx by Chris Harmon. That one I didn't quote here, but I reference it quite often. It's a, it's a pretty deep, rich book. So there you go. Getting into coffee donations, we had Steve, who purchased three coffees. Thank you, Steve. And recommended that we read Black and British by David Olusoga. It lays out 2,000 years of black history in Britain and as much space as you can get into one book. Thank you so much for doing your great work. Much love to 99. P.S. Fuck Winston Churchill. So there you go. More love for 99. Dan M. bought three coffees, said May Harmony Find You. Brent H. bought five coffees, said I'm a pitch fucker and I fucking love UNFTR and telling everyone about the pod. Thank you again to Nick and Goldie over at Pitchfork Economics for sending people here. If you're a fan of this show and haven't checked out Pitchfork Economics, you really should do so. Amazing, amazing show. Derek R. Hey, here's our guy. Oh, he wished us a happy election day. Bought us 10 coffees. Max Manny and 99 to my fellow liberals. Yes, we have elections every year. <laughs> but more people needed to get that message, I think, before the... Uh whatever that was <laughs> this week. Anyway, thank you, Derek, for doing that. Mark P., hey, became a member. Welcome to the fold, Mark P. Thank you for doing that. He said, great work, guys. Now, over on Facebook, Mitch S. said, maybe one of your best episodes yet. Loved how you put the burden on the consumers. We have the ultimate power. He's talking about the quickie that we did about Chappelle, Rogan, and uh, Jon Stewart. Louis R. also thought it was a great episode. And CJL said, loved the episode so timely. So now, what happened over on the Twitters? Gypsy in America said, if you haven't yet listened to Unfucking Republic, start. <laughs> it's outstanding. And they sell coffee to generate income, so it costs nothing to broke-ass listeners like me. Then Lala on the plane said, I feel like Max's Brit accent was somehow channeling both Michael Caine and the Geico Lizard. Great quickie, though. And then Wild-Eyed Bob. You're going to do it? No? Yeah. That's it. <laughs> uh, he said, I passed this on onto a Rogan listener and asked for his thoughts. Thanks for helping to start a conversation. I'm trying to meet him where he is and go from there in the convo. That's the most useful unfucking lesson I've learned from this show. 
I love that. <laughs> I love that a rogue, like a Rogan listener, is akin to like a Trumper. Like, oh, I have to meet this my friend who's a Rogan <laughs> listener where he is. <laughs> that's that's perfect. Thank you, Bob. I love that guy. He's so great. I can't wait to meet them all. Hey, Trick wrote in. Uh, Trick actually had an had an issue with us. You know, Trick is a great supporter of the show. We love her said, I'm going to give you some shit for the Jimmy Dore clip you used regarding his fight with Anna Kasparian. You gave more airtime to Dore and had his clip calling Kasparian a liar without the context of Kasparian and her co-workers saying he had sexually harassed her. Very fair point there, Trick. I was pulling uh, random clips and threading them together, but I, I didn't do a good job setting up the uh, context there. Yeah, Jimmy Dore's been, from what I understand, just a creep. And I hate I hate the way he's going about attacking the left in order to just pump up his numbers. It's really, it's kind of a travesty, but anyway. So thank you, Trick, for pointing that out, and we'll do better in the future. Garrell said, I feel like one could find an issue in the language towards Dave, Stewart, and Rogan. All three are on different levels of the spectrum to everyone in America right now, but the one person who, quote, lost his power or that 99 was trying to cancel was Dave bringing it back to meeting people where they are. If Dave's under attack, it's clear he's going to dig in. So uh, Garel, or it could be Gerald, sent in, um, it's a much longer email that, that he sends in, and it's actually really constructive. Um, and basically it's, it's looking at, okay, so you had two white guys and a black guy, and you went hardest after the black guy. So, you know, obviously I have to think about this for a second and try to frame my own bias and go and dig back into the episode. I definitely wasn't attacking Rogan. I was attacking people for misinterpreting Rogan and then seeing him for something that he's not, that he shouldn't be seen as, which is like a, a leader. He's just somebody who interviews people and sometimes has his own thoughts. That was sort of the message there. Stewart was missing something really big and fundamental, but still saying that he's terrific. And I thought I actually, I had a good conversation with, uh, you know, Manny, who could, you know, probably jump in at any point, insert some of his thoughts on that episode as well. I will. I'm just going to let y'all run for a minute. Because we had a spirited discussion about if we say that Dave missed a, a huge opportunity here by being uh, by targeting one marginalized community, does that necessarily take away from his power in his advocacy for black people over the years? His stuff has been really powerful in the black community. He's been a towering voice in the black community. And I think my point was, my fear was that it did steal power from his authority and by targeting a marginalized group, I feel like it actually did him, him, as, as a man, a huge disservice in that respect because even I saw him differently after that fact. Uh, so yeah, I did go after Dave harder because I think that he went so hard at his, you know, at this one constituency that it was like it deserved that type of undressing. But the larger point, I think, of all of it is that we are putting these men with platforms in a position to influence the way that we live and interact with one another. And that's really fucking dangerous because everybody misses some piece of the work. So yeah, was I going harder after Dave in those specific scenarios? But, you know, 99 had a, had a point that maybe maybe instead of Stuart, we do Bill Maher and we go right after the Islam, uh, his Islamophobia or some of his misogyny, right? Then we would have been attacking him full out or maybe we, we would have gone after Jimmy Dore and said, you know, his going after Anna Kasparian was, was, is loathsome. And it's misogynistic and all of that stuff. The point was to take three very hot trending topics with three massive people and put them on the stage and say, here's what's wrong with this from our perspective, their perspective. But it certainly wasn't about calling out anybody out over his race. 
my biggest problem, taking all of the emotion out of it and how I feel about the presentation of his topic, was that he didn't do the work. There was fundamental flaws in his logic in the social commentary. But it, it doesn't make his special 846 any less powerful for the black community. And it is a responsibility as somebody with the social platform for us to listen to that commentary because he was able to do it from the perspective of a black man in America, which is something I'll never be able to have. You'll never be able to have it. Many of our listeners will never be able to have it. We have to listen. So I do appreciate that feedback and don't think it wasn't in my mind. It was absolutely in my mind when crafting that. So I hope nothing came across that was not intended. Okay, to be as brief as I can, the conclusion that people are reaching about Chappelle is fine. I just think there's a lot missing if those conclusions are reached without even considering what I and several others, and I believe Chappelle himself, felt was the actual overarching point of his special. The disparity between how many in the LGBTQ community, and more important to his point, the overall white liberal community, is very quick and vehement in their defense of that community, when, in the opinion of him and many, many, many others, that defensiveness has never been there for the black community. And while we recognize that Dave's perspective is not something that we could all have, being a black man in America, for example, I feel like it's kind of dismissive to not consider that he might consider that this is actually all about race and not necessarily attacking a community, but pushing back against pushback from a community that in his mind should understand where he's coming from, because many feel that disparity exists. John Gruden wasn't forced to resign after racist remarks surfaced, but did so after homophobic ones came out. So while no one wants to have competing marginalizations, these sorts of optics, I believe, were at the core of the closer. Now this is not to absolve Chappelle at all, because this adds new nuance. Part of the critique is that by making it seem like it's all about the white liberal power structure behind and within the LGBTQ movement sends a signal that there aren't any black members of the LGBTQ community. And many of them have spoken out about this problematic aspect of Chappelle's tactics. All of which is to say, to me, it was way more nuanced than just a bad guy attacking a community for 90 minutes. Or a rich guy bitching about cancel culture and was never meant to be defended as, hey, it's just comedy, laugh, it's fine. It was social commentary about a disparity in how marginalized groups in America are defended. Now, to characterize it as hateful and transphobic may be a fair assessment that one reaches. But I think it's important to make sure that one takes all of these things into consideration on the way to that conclusion. That's all. Andrew L. said, holy fuck monkeys. The first accent you did in show notes was by far the best Aussie accent you've done so far. Now, here's what's so fucking tragic about that. I was trying to do Roy Kent from Ted Lasso, who is not Australian, and that's how it wound up. I'm all over the map with these accents, but I'm telling you, when we get to the unfucking the UK episode, you're all going to just go bananas. You're just And the unfucking Down Under episode, oh, we're just going to lose like a quarter of our listenership. They're just going to, they're just not going to tolerate my behavior. How many shrimps on the Barbie references are you going to make? I mean, it's just so like, That's I hope I can do knife. better. I hope I can do better. Uh, can you? I'm definitely not going to There's do only better. five references for Australia. It's like spiders. That's not a knife. Fucking spiders. Yeah. Shrimp on the Barbie, uh, <laughs> Vegemite, and maybe Steve Irwin. Definitely, definitely hitting Vegemite. Yeah. The fuck is Vegemite, right? It's a yeast-based spread. Uh, now, I'm, now I'm just like, <laughs> okay, sure. That's what it is. All right. Uh, Ian said, you've relit the left wing fire in me. Fuck, let's just let that sit out there. I love that. Thank you. Oh, Tristan sent us some essays on democratic socialism and uh, and the FCC, and we will check those out. Tristan, thank you as always for participating in the show. Ray Fraff 
sent uh, some more great Australia resources and encouraged me to uh, continue my accents, much to the chagrin of 99. I will definitely continue to do so, Rafe Raff. Appreciate you. Oh, this is so great. And P. Slippery, P. Slippery got back to us about Eugene Debs' book he's reading. It's called Writings of Eugene B. Debs, a collection of essays by America's most famous socialist. And 99 will link it in show notes. Flair shared a photo with us and said, just wanted to share a pic from my recent visit to Stor- Stormy Oregon Coast, where I had some unfucking good coffee. Dig that. Paul C. said, been listening for a few weeks and I really enjoy the show. Got to thinking after listening uh, to the recent episode, what's the most fucked up thing in our republic? Has to be the two-party duopoly. Have you given this topic any thought? Could we do something about it? Paul, if you check out Isms, our Isms episode, which was Capital Social Facts of the Lib, Lib to Marxism, we covered that for a little bit. Basically, a conversation that I had with Jay from Best of the Left, where he was sort of turning my head around on the two-party system, this illusion of democracy that we have. And he was essentially saying that in many ways... We have a quasi-parliamentary system because we have so many factions within the two parties, conservative, liberal, rhinos, blue dog Dems, the moderate Dems, the progressives, the all along the spectrum, the democratic socialist wing of the progressives, that each party has to build and form alliances. And I, I think we're living through it right now. Because if we had really a duopoly and a two-party system, we'd have one party right now that was just passing anything and everything it fucking could. And it can't get done because we have factions within factions. Uh, so will we unfuck two-party systems at some point? I don't know. We'll definitely work it more into our into our narratives as we go forward, Paul. But I don't know if we'll do a full unfucking on that. Let me think about it. And our buddy bookstore Kim from up in Vermont took a little break, came back to listen to a few episodes. And wow. Oh, she mentioned David. And listen, bookstore Kim would know. David Graeber has a new book coming out, The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity. I actually went back and forth with Kim for a little bit on that. It's so funny that Graeber's credited with inventing the phrase, we are the 99%, which he dismissed as like not being true, but he was definitely, quote, in the room when it was happening. He really came of prominence during the Occupy movement, much to his surprise. Like he was just like a, a writer, I think professor before that, and then became like this anarchist leader that emerged out of Occupy. And then People started reading his writings, and they're tremendous. Unfortunately, he did pass away last year, but uh, his forthcoming book is coming out. So listen, if you're in Vermont or New Hampshire or Maine or northern Massachusetts, northern New York, whatever it is, and it's a reasonable drive, why don't you actually go visit Bookstore Kim? Where is she? Uh, 99. What's the name of it? I believe Kim's bookstore is located in Lydenville, Vermont. Lydenville, Vermont? Yes. Okay. If that's wrong, we'll correct it next week. But once you drive there, unfuckers, yeah. just go there. Just go visit. Just show up on Bookstore Kim's doorstep. Be like, hey, I'm an unfucker. What do you got? And maybe David Graeber's book will be available. That'd be neat. Liana C. said, hey, UNFTR team. A friend of mine introduced me to this podcast about a week ago. I started the beginning and I'm a thousand percent addicted. Currently on the Cuba episode. Bas bien, 99. Bas bien, Maximo. I love it. I hope you enjoyed that episode and you're making your way through. Liana said your show is a validation and a gift and sometimes should come with antidepressants. <laughs> That's fair. Um, Celtic Apache. Hey, finally, I'd be interested in another Max rap, just not as AOC. And um, how is 99 going around calling Max a basic white guy? Then goes on about Sweet Home Alabama. Ouch. It made me laugh. It truly made me laugh out loud. And Celtic Apache's 100% right. But basic I, white girl. I feel like it's my civic duty to offset your basic white guyness with some basic white girlness. Can't have a thousand clips from The Godfather and not have any Reese Witherspoon clips. But I okay. will, just, just so everyone knows, I did not put the Mean Girls clip in. That was all Max. That was me. Yeah. 
I mean, top 10. I'm not anti-Mean Girls. Right? I'm just saying that was you. Maybe top 10 comedy of all time. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that movie. It's amazing. Uh, I mean, maybe some, some language could be updated. The R word. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Is that in there? Yeah, I believe they call caddy the R word. Oh. Yeah. Just I remember seeing it in theaters. For real? Mm-hmm. Wow. We saw The Incredibles, and <laughs> then we went and stuck into Mean Girls. So I didn't come into Mean Girls until much later because, you know, that was my dark period. Of course. Right. Okay. <laughs> and we had a review from Curious. Solid information, fun to listen to, more depth of thought than most podcasts. Well, that's a great way to conclude. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in once again. I hope you enjoyed the show. Come back next week when we do the flip side of money, which is power, both sides of the same coin. And as always, Unfucking the Republic is edited and arranged by Manny Faces Media. Unless you really don't like me after what I said, then it was arranged and edited by someone else. Our show is lovingly produced by the great and powerful 99. I will say it's unfair that Manny gets to do his alone by himself and he has a whole week to think about it. I'm sitting here, you know, just trying to do my job on the spot. You also had a whole week to think about it. I was busy. Mm. Other things to do. Wow. Our theme music was composed by Tom McGovern. Visit TomMcGovern.com. The show is hosted by central banks and distributed by lobbyists. Send us your comments, your questions, your suggestions to UNFTRPod at gmail.com. Connect with us on social at UNFTRPod. Become a member at buymeacoffee.com slash UNFTR. Visit our book list at bookshop.org slash shop slash UNFTR pod. Get some native roasted coffee at UNFTR.com slash shop and read our essays on Substack at UNFTR.substack.com. Remember, well, you know the rest. See you in 99. Bye. I let Joe use Air Force One to travel around the world and he just fell asleep everywhere he went. Did you see the videos of him sleeping? This is so fucking it's terrible. Sad. I know. I, I feel bad for him. Oh, no, he I did too. He just wants to go sleep. He's so sweet. Wait, quick. Wait. Jesus Christ. Get some native roasted coffee at UNFTR. Con- it's the same old song. The explanations we've covered. A-